If you brought your Bible with you tonight, let's go to the Old Testament book of Exodus this evening, Exodus chapter 8, as we're continuing in our systematic study through the book of Exodus. We've already tackled the book of Genesis, we've got that in the rearview mirror, and we've got Exodus laid out for us, and then Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so we're just going to wallow around in it for a while and uh, let it soak in. You know, the Bible speaks about itself as being food for the believer, and God is so sovereign and amazing that the same book that is milk for the newborn believer is meat for the mature believer. And I am so thankful for you folks coming back on a Sunday night as we dig into the Word and we chew around on it and get into the meat and we're able to do a little more in depth. This evening, I want us to tackle verses 16 through 24. And The subject of this passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at is the hand of God and we'll make that evident as we go along. Exodus chapter 8 verse 16 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Lo, he cometh forth to the river and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Else, if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee, and upon thy servants, upon thy people, unto thy houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground whereon they are. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I will put division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. And the Lord did so. And there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come hungry once again, uh, seeking to be fed from you, from your word. So thankful to know that there is always a nourishing meal that will strengthen us and grow us as believers. I thank you for the dear folks who are here tonight who are intent on studying your word and growing in their knowledge and growing in grace. Father, I pray and ask that you would just use your word to make us more like Christ this evening. As we go forth from this place into our week, I pray and ask that our light might shine ever brighter and that we might reflect you in all that we do. Lord, we need strength for the journey, and we are seeking that now through the nourishment of your word. And Father, help me to be a good cook this evening, I pray, as you set the table. In Jesus' name, amen. 
In this section of scripture, we are in the the ten plagues and we've already surveyed all ten of those. We just read about plague three and four. Plague three is lice. Plague four are the swarms of flies. But there is something that stands out in this text of scripture and that is that up to this point, the magicians of Egypt have been able to replicate what Moses and Aaron did, right? They turned their rod into a serpent like Moses and Aaron did and they turned the water into blood like Moses and Aaron did. They called up frogs out of the rivers like Moses and Aaron did. But when they turned the dust into lice, the magicians of Egypt cannot do this no matter how much empowerment they may have from the darkness of Satan. They cannot replicate this. And they make really a shocking confession. They say this is none other than the finger of God. And that little phrase there just alerted my attention to something that is accentuated in this section of Scripture, and that is the hand of God. If we were to go back to Exodus chapter 3 when God has a conference with Moses, he says this in verses 19 and 20, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand, and I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders. God prophesies that, tells Moses that in Exodus chapter 3. There's some back and forth, and then Moses goes on and meets with the people. But if you would look with me at a few verses in this section of Scripture, I just want you to see how often this is repeated. And so Exodus chapter 7, verse 4 But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Again, chapter 7, verse 5, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. From there, we go to chapter 8, verse 18, where we see the finger of God, which is indicative of the hand. We move on to chapter 9, verse 3, and it says, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon the cattle. Chapter 9, verse 15, For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and the people with pestilence. Exodus chapter 13, as we move forward in verse 3, speaks again of the hand of God in this manner. And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which ye came out from Egypt out of the house of bondage, for by strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. And then 13.9, And it shall be for a sign unto thee and upon thine hand and for a memorial between thine eyes that the Lord's laws may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. Chapter 13, verse 14. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this? Thou shalt say unto him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt from the house of bondage. And again, chapter 13, verse 16, And it shall be for a token upon thine hand and for frontlets between thine eyes, for by strength of hand... The Lord brought us forth out of Egypt. 
And so if we are paying attention to the Word of God and we find a repeated phrase, something that is accentuated, then we have to start asking some questions about that because while the hand of God is mentioned throughout the entire Bible, you never see it in a concentrated way like this, only in this section of Scripture. In fact, if we were to go into Exodus chapter 15 after they crossed the Red Sea and Moses writes a song that becomes memorialized and passed down through generations, in Exodus 15, 6 it says, Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And so as we start noticing that there's this accentuated emphasis on the hand of God in this section of Scripture, we have to realize that the hand of God symbolizes divine interaction in the realm of humanity. Why is that phrase used? Why do they keep talking about the hand of God? Because they are talking about a divine interaction in the realm of humanity. It is emblematic of God reaching down and reaching into the lives of his people. You know, as I have journeyed with the Lord over the last 25 years, there are some things that I've learned about God that have been a comfort to me throughout my life. Learning about the love of God was One of the greatest, most encouraging discoveries that I ever made. I've shared with you guys my testimony, how that with my dad leaving and not having much to do with us, essentially abandoning us uh, when me and my brother were kids, I struggled with feeling loved and feeling lovable. And when it was shown to me and explained to me that God loves And that God doesn't just love in empty phrases, but God proved his love when he sent his son to die on the cross. I'm telling you, that has given me strength on some of my most difficult days. There are other truths that I've learned about God, like his Holy Spirit that abides in me and is doing a constant work in me. That's encouraging because you know what? Every day is not a day when I focus on my own Christian improvement. How about you? There are some days I'm just trying to get back to my bed, honestly. You know, you get out of, out of that bed and you're just thrown into the gamut and you're like a, like a pinball from one side to the other. And all I'm looking forward to is getting back into that bed that night. And I'm not, not working real hard on trying to make myself better. I'm just trying not to break any laws, right? Uh, some days are like that. And it's encouraging to me that even on those days... God doesn't take a break. He is faithful that began a good work in me. will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. And that his Holy Spirit is working in my life. Well, this truth, this, this, this evidence here of God's hand is one of those discoveries that encourages me. Because honestly, life is designed to discourage us. And God didn't design it that way, but that is the distorted system after sin. And so things in life that were never meant to be a battle are a battle. We, We were never meant to battle between choosing good and evil, but yet because Adam and Eve partook of the fruit and sin and gave us a sin nature, we battle with that, right? We were never supposed to battle with disease. God didn't create disease in the Garden of Eden. They had perfect health and perfect life. Uh, And so many of those things. And so as we go through life, there are any number of things that seem to take control of our lives or of our paths or 
at least impact us like a sideswipe on the interstate that catches you off guard. And it is encouraging to me to know that God does interact in the human realm. And that as it is described here, he is reaching down and he is reaching in. And even when I don't see it, the hand of God is active. Do you think that while Moses was going through this, remember, oh, melancholy Moses. I don't think that he was upbeat, do you? I think he's a good man. I know he was a good man. He is the meekest man, the Bible says, who walked on the face of the earth. But I'm telling you, he was melancholy. He tried to talk God out of calling him on multiple occasions. He got down. He got discouraged. And sometimes God would say he's going to judge the people and Moses would have enough strength to say, no, don't do it. And then other days Moses would say, God, get them. I'm done. As a matter of fact, I know Moses is melancholy because we're going to see down the road that at one point he actually prays and asks God to kill him. These trifling people have worn my nerves out. God, just kill me right now. Please take my... And it was a genuine, sincere prayer of his. And so I know that in his humanity, in his flesh, there had to be times when Moses is looking and saying, man, is, is God really working here? I mean, Pharaoh flip-flops back and forth. Yes, I'll let you go. No, I won't let you go. They're still in bondage. All these things are happening. And yet, the hand of God is being accentuated to see that even in this time of conflict, in this time of tension, in this time of back and forth and a step forward and a step back, that God's hand is present and it is working and it is guiding. And so there's two aspects about the hand of God that I want us to focus on tonight. Number one, the hand of God is powerful. The hand of God is powerful. We see that there is a parallel in this section of Scripture between God stretching out His hand and Moses and Aaron stretching out their hands. We didn't read all those passages, but if we would go back, you would find as many times as it says that God is going to reach in, that He's going to stretch out His hand, we find that He commands Moses or Aaron, stretch forth your hand over the water, stretch forth your hand over the dust, stretch forth your hand over the cattle. Moses and Aaron's power came from God's hand on them. I remember when my kids were much smaller, sometimes they would be wrestling with trying to twist something off and they couldn't quite get it. Instead of me just taking it out of their hand and doing it, sometimes I would just put my hand over their hand and give the strength of whatever it was to get a lid off or maybe so that they could experience that that personal victory there to understand that that they were a part of that program and you know the idea here is that God is having Moses and Aaron stretch forth their hands but what is unseen in the spiritual realm is that it is God's hand on them and God's hand with them that is giving them the power so much so that these Egyptian sorcerers, think about this, these, these are pagan idolaters. And the only explanation that we have as for why they can imitate these miracles of turning a staff into a serpent or water into blood is that they are demonically possessed or controlled, that Satan is a major actor in the background of this conflict that is going on here. So even these guys... These sorcerers had to confess 
that it was none other than the finger of God that did this. I don't know about you, but I, I, I might lose an argument, but I don't often concede that the other person is absolutely right, do you? I mean, sometimes I hold out some contingencies. Well, you might be right on that, but... And uh, but so think about the power of this that that must have been displayed that they must have felt that they may must have witnessed for them to actually attribute this to the hand or the finger of God. Interestingly, the the finger is inseparable from the hand, but respects that God is so powerful that this miracle is attributed to just one of his fingers and not the entire hand. That's another interesting aspect to this, is that these sorcerers, these magicians, recognized that it was the power of God, but they didn't say that it was the hand of God. They said that it was the finger of God. We know that the finger is attached to the hand, but it seems to be that they understand that this God that is empowering Moses and Aaron is so powerful that while this is a miracle beyond their power to do, it is simply God exercising or extending one finger. He doesn't have to give it his entire hand or his grip strength to make this happen. These powerful magicians had to admit that this miracle was only possible through supernatural power. Do you remember last week we discovered in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, that it makes a reference to the two chief magicians that stood against Moses. They were called Janus and Jambres. And in that passage of Scripture, it actually indicates what they are lacking. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says it this way, it says, now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. Verse 5 in that chapter says, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Power, the hand of God empowers his people. And what these magicians were lacking was the power that comes from the hand of God. Well, what does this mean for us? As we read the Bible, we are digesting the Bible, we are trying to take it in, and we've got to say, okay, what does this mean for me? Well, one of the ways to help you understand how to interpret the Bible was explained to me years ago. Uh, the Bible has three primary audiences. It has the Jew, the Gentile, and the Church of God. And the Old Testament is written to the Jew. Some parts are written to the Gentile. God gives prophecy of coming judgment on some of the Gentile nations like uh, Babylon and Persia and Rome and those places. And then part of it is written to the church. When I'm reading the Bible, I have to know whose mail I am reading. When I'm reading in the New Testament, this is me. This is for me. God is writing to me. And so I can take everything that he says personally and I can say, yes, that's how I'm supposed to understand that and apply that and that promise is to me. But when I'm reading the Old Testament, I have to understand I'm reading letters that are addressed to somebody else. And so it's like this, David. Let's say that 
Your grandfather dies and he leaves you this last will and testament and what he has written to you is from a lifetime of wisdom and man it has some great nuggets of truth of things that he has wanting to pass on to you and you, you, you appreciate that so much you bring it to me and say hey read this I mean there's some good stuff in here and I'm reading oh grandpa is telling me how to love my wife and raise my kids and do all this and then at the end it says I leave you all of my possessions. Does that mean that I get to go and get all of Grandpa's stuff? No, because it is addressed to you. And so I understand that while part of it is beneficial for me, it is not, the promise is not directly to me. So when I'm coming to the Old Testament, we're coming to the Old Testament, we understand that. We understand that you and I are not the recipients of a piece of real estate in the Middle East. Israel is. And so when I read this about the hand of God on the Israelites, on Aaron and Moses, I have to ask, what does this mean for me? What does this look like in my context? Uh, Sadly, sadly, there are some false teachers out there. I saw a video of a charismatic televangelist named Kenneth Copeland this week, if you're familiar who uh, this guy is. He's the guy who blew on the COVID virus back in the spring and made it all go away. Right. I saw in this video that he told people put their hand on their head where they had a bald spot. And he said, baldness go away, baldness go away, hair grow. And he made those people repeat that with their hand. Is that, is that what this text of scripture means? That, that I've got the hand of God on me and I've got power in my hand like Moses and Aaron did. And, and I, I can place that powerful hand on my bald spot and make it go away. Now I'm not above trying it. I just, I've I found out it doesn't work, right? And so we have to ask how does this work? Well, for you and I as New Testament believers, we have the New Testament to help us interpret and understand the Old Testament. And God used similar, similar language in Acts chapter 11. And so let's hold our place in Exodus Let's leave the hand of God on Moses and Aaron there. And let's go into the New Testament and say, okay, what does the hand of God look like on the believer? We know what it looked like on Moses and Aaron. It it meant that they had the power to create plagues. They had the power to do some pretty supernatural things. So what does it look like on a believer in the New Testament dispensation? Acts chapter 11, verse 19 Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Watch verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. When I read this Old Testament truth, I understand that God divinely interacts in the human realm. I understand that God reaches in and he reaches down and he empowers his people to do some things that they could not do on their own. In Moses and Aaron's context, it was to have this standoff with Pharaoh and with his magicians and to perform miracles that they could not do in their own power. And what I learned is that in my context of the New Testament, that when the hand of the Lord is with me or was on those Christians, in uh, the book of Acts, it was empowering them 
to lead the lost to Christ, which, by the way, takes supernatural power. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It doesn't matter how smooth your gospel presentation is if the hand of the Lord is not upon the person convicting them and calling them and compelling them, they will not get saved. And by the way, if the heavy hand of God's conviction is upon them, they can't resist the invitation of the gospel. It's not in my power. It's not in your power. Paul said it wasn't in his power and Apollo's powers. They simply plant the seed, water the seed. It is the Lord who gives the harvest. It is the Lord who gives the increase. And so I'm encouraged by this to see that the hand of God is active in the life of Moses and Aaron and that the hand of God is active in the lives of Christians. By the way, I can think of no greater power to desire than that type of power in Acts 11. Look, it would be really cool if we could do a miracle, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be, would be really, really cool. But I could do a hundred miracles and people could still go to hell. But if I have the hand of God on me in such a way that when I share my testimony, that when I witness to people, that they get saved, man, that is eternal. That is the most valuable asset that we could possibly have in this world. And the good news is, you have it. The hand of God is on you as a believer, as it was in the book of Acts. Back in our text of Exodus, uh, the second truth about the hand of God is that the hand of God is protective. The hand of God is protective. In that passage of Scripture that we read, Exodus 8, 16 through 24, not only do we find the powerful hand of God in the performing of these miracles that the magicians cannot perform, but we also find the protective hand of God as he sections off the portion of Egypt in which his people are living and separates them from the plagues that are from here forward uh, laid out on the Egyptians. Exodus eight twenty two. God says this, I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end, thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, and I will put division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. It is also in the midst of this text in which the hand of God is being accentuated that God puts a division between his people and Pharaoh's people. If you would, look there in that text and you'll find that this division is highlighted in the following plagues in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 3, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon the cattle, which is in the field, and upon the horses, and upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, upon the sheep, there shall be a very grievous moraine. And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. And there shall nothing die of all that is the children of Israel's. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died, but... 
the cattle of the children of Israel died not. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one, did you notice that? Not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Again, if we drop down to verse 26, another plague comes, which is the hail that falls on the land along with fire. In verse 26, it says this, Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. And so we must attribute this distinction to the people uh, as the proactive hand of God upon his people. In one instance, it is the powerful hand of God that is raining down the plague on the Egyptians. And in the other, it is the protective hand of God that severs between the Egyptians and the Israelites and lets no flies pass, allows no cattle to die from this disease, allows no hellfire to fall in their land. One is the powerful hand of God. The other is the protective hand of God. We see that they received quite a bit of protection as no swarms of flies came into their houses. Man, I don't know if you've had any experience with flies, but it's hard to keep those things away. I know that when I was on a missions trip to Cuba, there was an inordinate amount of flies. As a matter of fact, when we would sit down to eat, they would take the fan and they would point it at the food, not at the people, because that, that wind blowing across the food was about the, the only thing that would keep the flies from landing on the food. But I tell you what, you couldn't stop them. And yet here in this passage of Scripture, we find that not one fly made it into Goshen. Because of God's protective hand. We also find that not one of the cattle of the Israelites died. Pharaoh went and had that verified. And he is shocked and he is angered that not one cattle died. In Exodus 9, 25 and 26 it says this. Only in the land of Goshen where the children of Israel was. Was there no hail. More importantly not one life was lost or even sick among the Israelites. During this period of time, during this period of time in which the hand of God is upon them, in power and in in protection, not one life is lost, and people are not even sick. You say, how do you know that? Well, do you remember how we read Psalm 105 last week? And that Psalm 105 is a commentary on this period of time during the 10 plagues let me just read to you what verse 37 says it says God brought them forth also with silver and gold also there was not one feeble person among their tribes and that's some sort of protection that God has on those people that they didn't get sick, that they didn't die, that during this period of time that when they come out, there's not one feeble person. You can only attribute that to the protective hand of God. So what does that mean for God's people today? Does that mean that we won't ever get sick or die? No. Again, think spiritually, not physically. Another good rule of application is that the things that are done and spoken of physically in the Old Testament 
oftentimes have a spiritual application in the New Testament, right? God's people is doing battle with the, with the forces of the Philistines or the Midianites or the Egyptians and they're taking up swords and they are fighting and they have a great leader and a conqueror in King David. Does that mean that we are supposed to go out and fight battles against uh, the Muslims or whoever? No, the New Testament doesn't tell us that, but it does tell us that we're in a spiritual battle and that we are to take on the armor of the Lord and that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And so we find this physical uh, lesson in the Old Testament has a spiritual application in the New Testament. And so when we take this idea of the protective hand of God upon these people and upon their health and preservation, uh, we go into the New Testament to get the application. And so if you would go with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, and we find from the lips of Jesus the application for Christians when it comes to the protective hand of God. John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my what? My hand. Verse 29, my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's, what? Hand. You see, as we think about the protective hand of God in Exodus, in that passage of scripture where it's being accentuated, it is protecting the people of Israel from the judgments of God. It is preserving their life and it is preserving their health so that when they are delivered out, there is not even one feeble person among them. As we look into the New Testament, we understand that we have been separated from the world by the protective hand of God, and we are untouched by his judgments. When you and I got saved, God made a distinction between us and the world. He severed us from the world. The Bible says, Come ye out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. I will be a God to you. You will be children, sons and daughters to me. And so that idea of severance, of separation, is that you and I as Christian people are separated from the world. We're in the world, but we are not of the world. The Israelites were in Egypt, but they were not of Egypt. And in that wicked place, God protected them and preserved them and separated them. By the way, that truth right there reminds me that I cannot expect ideal treatment in this world as a Christian. I just can't come to expect that. can't expect it from government. I can't expect it from the culture. I can't expect it uh, from whatever entity it may be because God made a difference between us and them when he saved us, just as he did between the Israelites and the Egyptians. But the other aspect of the protective hand of God, not just that they were preserved in life and health, they were protected from the judgments. You see, these ten miracles are actually ten judgments that are unleashed on the land of Egypt. And they begin to get worse and worse in degree, culminating in the greatest judgment, which is a judgment of death, when the life of the firstborn are taken. 
But as we read in the narrative, we find that none of those judgments touched the people in Goshen. And that not one of the Jews' firstborn died because they were protected by the hand of God, by the blood of the Lamb. And so you and I need to realize that we are under the protective hand of God and that while God's judgment will come on this world, God will protect us from that. Now, I'm a premillennial. I believe that God will call his church out before the tribulation begins. And if you interpret the Bible literally, you can come to no other conclusion than that, that the church is taken out before the tribulation begins, before the seals are broken in Revelation 6 and the major judgments come. But we also realize that there is a judgment that comes before the tribulation judgment. And that God's judgment that comes on this earth and comes on these nations, that you and I as believers have a protection from that because Jesus took all of our judgment for us. So that when we read about those end times in Revelation, we don't have to worry about going through those things because those are God's judgments and they're not going to come on his people because we are under his protective hand. The other truth that is encouraging from this is that in the protective hand of God, as Jesus describes it in John chapter 10, Christians are in no danger of losing their eternal life. If God's protective hand was strong enough to preserve every life of the Hebrews and to preserve their health in such a way that he can say that when they came out, they all walked under their own power, that there was not one feeble person among them, then I would say to you that the application of that is that you and I as believers, under the protective hand of God, will not lose one ounce of eternal life before we go home to meet the Lord. So many Christians seem to trouble themselves with that thought. Am I saved? How do I know I'm saved? Well, I once was saved, but I don't feel saved now. Well, I've done some, I've done some stuff since I got saved. Does that mean I've lost my salvation? Am I not as fully saved as I once was? It's interesting to me that you'll talk to people who are worried about this and they'll struggle with it and, and, and they think that there is a point that they can lose their salvation, but yet that always seems to be a moving mark. Am I there? I don't know if I am or not. Let me tell you something. God wants you to rest in his hand. You're not holding on to him. He's holding on to you. Those Israelites didn't come out of that simply because they were clinging to God. In fact, some of them had some faith struggles along the way, did they not? Did not the elders of Israel come and confront Moses and say, What are you doing? You're not helping us. You're hurting us. You are dragging us down. We know that they didn't come out of their spiritual giants. As soon as they run low on water, they start complaining. What did God do? Bring us out here to die in the desert. We know that God had to discipline them along the way. And so it wasn't because their faith was so strong that it kept them and preserved them. It was because the protective hand of God was so strong. The same is true for you and I. You don't have to fret when you go to bed tonight wondering whether or not you're saved. You're in God's hand and nobody can pluck you out. You can't take yourself out of it. And if you were able to crawl out of Jesus' hand, you'll find that you're in the hand of the Father when you get out. 
No man can pluck you out. You can't take yourself out. And so this evening, I think it would be good for us to pray for the power of God's hand upon us. I do believe that our witness can be stronger for the Lord when we walk with him in his word, when we live lives according to his will. I do believe that we can see the hand of God. While the hand of God never lacks power, the vessel through which he operates can. We can have those crises of faith like Moses did where he retreats from what God's called him to do. And I'm afraid that we do that sometimes as Christians. The hand of God is there. The power of God is there. You know, one of the saddest verses I ever read in the Bible, I believe it's in Luke chapter 5. And the Bible says that Jesus is teaching, and I believe that's when they bring in the paralyzed man and, and drop him down through the ceiling. There's a verse in Luke chapter 5 that says that the Pharisees were there. And some of them had some issues, physical issues. And it says this, the power of God was there to heal them. But there's not a record of any of them getting healed. Because they didn't come looking for that. They didn't come wanting to receive that. They came as critics. And the fact is, the power of God is there. The hand of God is there. If you and I are willing to be his instruments in his hand. And so let's close this service tonight praying for the hand of God's power on us and thanking him for his hand of protection over us. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you used terminology that give us a living daily object lesson. The very fact that you repeat this phrase that your hand was stretched out on Israel, that it was by the strength of your hand, gives us this visual aid every time we put our hand to something through our daily routine. We're reminded of the fact that even though you are transcendent, you are reaching down and you are reaching into the affairs of mankind and that your hand is a powerful hand upon your people and that it empowers your people to do things that they cannot do in their own power. Father, I do pray and ask that, that we would be willing instruments. I pray that we, we would be compliant vessels for you to use, that your hand would be upon us in such a way that, that, that we give the gospel to others. We know that the gospel has power, but the problem is the gospel is just not going out like it needs to because we are not giving it out like we should. And so, Lord, I do pray that your powerful hand would be upon us, especially in this Christmas season, to be your witnesses, to lead others to Christ. And, Lord, we just want to thank you for your protective hand. We know that if salvation, our salvation, was in our own hands, we would all lose it. None of us would be able to hold on to it. None of us would keep our grip tight enough to keep it from slipping out of reach. But there is such a comfort in knowing that you are the one who is cupping us and holding us. And that no matter what comes along, there is nothing that can dislodge us or shake us out or pluck us from the grip of your hand. Just as the children of Israel were under your protective hand and no swarm, no judgment, no thing could come and affect them. And just as you preserved their life and their health, you preserve our eternal life and eternal health. Father, I just pray and ask that you would help us 
going out this evening in the full measure of life and health, enjoying it as you've given it to us, realizing that you came to give us life and that you came to give it to us more abundantly. And so, Lord, I pray that your people would go out here tonight victoriously, just as your people did in Moses' day. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.